together on the text. And so we just had it read, a quick reminder of the historical context, and then a quick summary of what's been going on in Titus chapter 1 so that we can rightly understand and apply Titus 2, 1 through 10. So for the historical context, Paul wrote this letter to Titus, who was one of his church planting companions uh, mentioned throughout the New Testament, and he was currently stationed in Crete when he received this letter. So one thing that's going to be super important as we look at this text is we have to remember that Crete was one of the most godless societies in history. So godless, in fact, that this expression, like a Cretan, is something that we still use today, 20 centuries later, and it's used to describe someone or a place that is particularly corrupt and sinful. So this is the context. So Paul left Titus to teach them and to further structure and organize this budding baby church. And so this is personal correspondence to Titus from Paul that instructs him How does he go about this this heavy and difficult task? And now for a quick summary of Titus 1, so you guys can be glancing as I'm mentioning the verses here. So we have this intro in 1 to 4, and Paul here discusses his role as an apostle, as someone who is appointed for the sake of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, and the truth corresponds with godliness. Then in verse 5, Paul Paul tasks Titus with finding elders who are going to be careful teachers of God's word because the church needs to be defended and also exemplary disciples in every way in their behavior. And then unfortunately, in verses 10 to 16, Paul mentions that there are many people in and around the Cretan church who are false teachers and they're upsetting the faith of whole families. They're literally turning these people's faith upside down. And so as we look at our text for this morning, uh, we see the little phrase in 2.1 that says, but as for you. And so this little but here links 2.1 to the directly preceding verses And it serves to create a contrast between Titus and these false teachers. So Paul is urging Titus to teach and act in such a way that God's household is put back into order, where those false teachers had turned everything upside down. And so what we have, what follows in this section of verses that was just read, is this list of ethical commands for the Cretan church to live by. And so here is, I think, the main point of what Paul is driving at here. This is what he's trying to make sure that people, that Titus understands And it's this, it's that godly behavior in the church that's consistent with sound doctrine allows us, allows the church to have an impact on people far from God. So godly behavior in the church that's consistent with sound doctrine allows us to have a spiritual impact on those far from God. So let's work through the text together. So here in verse 1, which is the thing that overhangs the whole passage, It's this command to teach behavior consistent with sound doctrine. It says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. So Titus is commanded to teach things that go along with sound or healthy doctrine, so it also follows that he's supposed to teach sound doctrine itself. These two things, what accords with sound doctrine and sound doctrine itself, go together. You can't have one without the other. But in the text here, and more generally speaking, what is sound doctrine? And what do you think about when you hear the word sound doctrine? I think we can tend to think of stuffy classrooms, of sort of dusty 19th century heavy theological books, or boring debates on the sort of fine points of Greek grammar. But really here, doctrine, far from being something that's detached from our daily lives, it is actually the apostolic message of God's saving work throughout history, which culminated in Christ. And according to verse 1, there are apparently things that correspond to it that Titus is supposed and commanded to teach. And we'll see that these things that accord with sound doctrine are these ethical expectations that are incumbent upon the different cross-sections of the Cretan church, which is what we see 
in verses 2 to 10. So to summarize, our behavior as a family in God's household is not equal to sound doctrine. Rather, godly behavior, according to Paul, flows from an understanding of sound doctrine. So let's move on to the next section. So next, in verse 2, we have godly behavior and older men. This is verse 2 here. So older men are told to be sober-minded. And this characteristic refers to someone who is clear-headed. And so this term oftentimes in the ancient world was used to talk about someone who was moderate in the drinking of alcoholic beverages. It could also be used to speak about someone who had their head on right. They were level-headed and restrained in their conduct. And so I really think it's likely that both senses of the word are in view here, especially with what we'll see in a second about drinking and other things like that. So they're supposed to be both literally sober-minded and metaphorically sober-minded. So next, they're told to be dignified and self-controlled there in verse 2. I think what this is saying is they know the station in life that they're in and they embrace it. And so overall, these first three descriptors paint a picture of an older man who is serious about life. He acts his age. And while these first three descriptors, sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, if we're honest, they may seem somewhat kind of stoic to us, the next three that we see are very warm and they're characteristic of men who are walking faithfully with the Lord as they approach the end of their earthly pilgrimage. Let's look down and see what that says here. It says they are to be sound or healthy in faith, love, and steadfastness. So the verbal idea here is that this triad of Christian virtues is to be apparent in their lives, and these characteristics are to be a growing reality. It's not something that happened in the past, but it's something that's continuing to grow even now. And so now I think at first glance, uh, it seems, we look at these, this first section here in verse 2, it seems like a rather unremarkable group of adjectives, right? He basically seems to be telling them, you know, be nice southern gentlemen. But remember, this is a baby church on the island of Crete. We know that it's not a developed church because there's no leaders in place yet, which happened pretty quickly when Paul was in other places. So despite their old age, these older men, they were probably newer believers. And consequently, they had lived their whole lives in this unadulterated debauchery of the Cretan lifestyle. Imagine Joe the Cretan, for example. He'd been robbing, stealing, binge drinking his whole life until the age of 65, and then he hears the good news, and he repents. Joe would no doubt have had so many sinful patterns ingrained into his life because of all the sinful repetitions he had been put, he'd been putting in over the years. And so nevertheless, Paul still commands Titus to expect this from Joe the Cretan and the other older men in the church. And the same goes for really all these other groups that we're about to see. These are new baby believers. And so how are they with all of their sinful baggage and everything that's going on, how are they supposed to really be able to walk this out? What's going to fuel them to do that? So we're not told here, so let's move on to the next section and see if Paul will throw Titus a bone here and actually help him figure out how to make these hardened sinners do this stuff. So let's move on to the next section. We see here godly behavior in women. This is in verses 3 to 5. So older women in the church, they're addressed next. And Paul here in verse 3 at the beginning includes the connector word, likewise. And he does this to let us know that what he just said to older men stands in continuity with what, he just, with what he's going to say to older women. And the word you'll see the word likewise again actually in verse 6, once again indicating continuity this time between instruction to the women and instruction to the younger men. So there's continuity between these sections in the sense that these are behaviors that all flow from sound doctrine, like we see in verse 1. But they're also different because of real distinctions in gender, uh, in role, station in life, and even giftings. And so we can praise the Lord for instruction that doesn't deny our differences here, but actually calls us to obey Christ in unique ways. And so these instructions here, starting in verse 3, 
to the older women. They're laid out in an ABBA format. When I say that, I mean it's in a, it's in a do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this. That's sort of the, the little uh, mechanism that Paul is using here to get his point across. So ABBA. Furthermore, they're, they're, they are to, they like the older men, the first thing we see is they're to be reverent in behavior by being serious and acting their age. Furthermore, they're not to be slanderers, like it says there, nor are they to be slaves to much wine. Finally, the older women are to teach what's good. Paul then adds this purpose clause in the next sentence that tells us why older women need to do the things he commanded in the previous verses. And it's because they have a great responsibility to train the young women in the church in behavior that corresponds with sound doctrine. Older women here are called to take on this crucial role in forming the next generation. But let's not forget that Paul is telling Titus to make sure that this sort of life-on-life transformation, this life-on-life training in godliness from the older women towards the younger women, Paul's telling Titus to make sure that that is going on in the church. And so Titus, as this proto-elder, this proto-pastor of, this, of the various churches in Crete, is responsible for this. And this, by extension, is one of the responsibilities of the church leader here in the 21st century. I'm, I'm thankful that there seems to have been a renewed focus from our church on this area. I think at some point there was a recognition that maybe this had been a weakness and we weren't giving enough attention to it. And we really do want to say thank you for this, for this renewed emphasis on this crucial aspect of ministry because we've really been benefited by it in lots of different ways. And lots of people, lots of you as I look out, have spoken into Lauren's life even while we're overseas in some difficult times. And that we've reaped the spiritual benefits of this newfound focus, not newfound, but this newfound emphasis on this life-on-life training in godliness from older women towards younger women. So we're really thankful for that. So we just want to say thank you. So back to the text in verses 4 to 5. The younger women are indirectly addressed by Paul here as he tells the older women what they need to teach the younger women. So younger women here in verses 4 to 5, they're to be taught to love their husbands and children, which seems kind of weird at first, right? Because, you know, husbands and children are always just so lovable all the time. But kidding aside, Paul is definitely speaking here about this sort of sacrificial and Christ-reflecting love, which is much more involved than simple romantic love between a husband and a wife, which can wane over time. Or even he's talking about something even more than maternal affection for children, which is also pretty tested in, in lots of different ways. So in verse 5, Paul continues to use several different unique adjectives to describe how the younger women are to act. So they're to be, let's look at the text together, they're to be self-controlled. This is the second time that's been mentioned. They're to be pure or chaste. They're to be working or busy at home, kind, and then submissive to their own husbands. So working at home and submissive to their own husbands, these phrases, I think they deserve our attention and some explanation. So working at home, is Paul saying that women should always stay at home? Of course not. When he says working at home, he's encouraging them to not ignore taking care of their responsibilities in this important sphere. Furthermore, I think if we look closer at the context, we can glean that if believing younger women are staying home and they're keeping busy there, then they're not going to be out drinking and partying it up with and binge drinking with these older women who are mentioned in verse 3. And so Paul's not drawing a box around the home and telling young women to stay there and to never leave or to never work and earn an income from their family. I believe this was touched on by Tom a few, days, a few Sundays ago, but scripture, in fact, speaks of women who worked outside the home as positive examples, some examples of faithfulness. So examples include the Proverbs 31 woman, Lydia, the seller of purple goods in Philippi, 
in Acts 16, even Priscilla, who was a tent maker, who was first mentioned in Acts 18. And so I think the text at hand, though, does imply that if a woman has a family and she's neglecting to take care of her home, uh, either because of laziness or because she's giving all of her time to her work, then this could be a violation of the command. And it would take some wisdom, some honest conversations between husband and wife, bringing other people into this to decide where's the line, where is too much. But I think we see here that, this, that overspending a time with, with and ignoring sort of the home could be something that would be a violation of this command. So this is something to think about. So, but what about the submissive to your own husband's phrase? The text says younger women were commanded to submit themselves to their own husbands or literally their own man. And not every man that comes across their path and they're to do so, and the idea is that they're to do so out of reverence for Christ in their marital relationships. And certainly, this is not a proof text indicating that a woman should never be in a position of authority over a man in any sphere of life. So I, for one, am really thankful for the precision of God's word here because it does not put women in a permanently inferior position to men at all whatsoever. And so at the end of verse 5, we see that the older and younger women are supposed to be a certain way and do certain things so that, purpose clause here, the word of God might not be reviled or blasphemed. So this is the first time, but not the last time in the passage that we're told that godly behavior in the church that's consistent with sound doctrine allows us to have an impact on people who are far from God. And so amazingly, the Lord is telling us here that the faithfulness of women in their roles and stations in life, and specifically their faithfulness to mentor and train younger women, has an impact on the believability of the gospel for those, on the out, those that are outside the church. We'll see this idea s- repeated several times in the passage, but somehow the idea is that in God's economy and in his providential extension of salvation to sinners, he has decided to link the moral behavior of his people inside the church with the expansion, or not, of his kingdom in the world. And so regardless of how we understand how all these things fit together, I really think the women here need to hear this in this season where we have been largely stuck in our houses much more than usual. And so, ladies, you need to know that God says that your personal holiness, your continued love for your husbands and children, if you have them, your faithfulness to carry out your work in the home and your work outside of the home, that these tasks are absolutely critical if, you're gonna, if we are going to present a compelling witness to nonbelievers around us. But we're still not told in the text what is going to empower these women to carry these things out. So let's keep reading and see what we find. So the next section, be godly behavior and young men plus Titus. So this is verses six through eight. So this sentence explaining Paul's instructions to Titus concerning other young men in the church in verse six is very short, but also very appropriate. So he is to urge the younger men to be self-controlled. The manner in which Paul tells Titus to address the younger men is to urge or strongly exhort them. And so this is a much more forceful verb than what had been used previously in the passage for other groups. And why do we think that is? Well, I think it's because young men are often stubborn and we need strong rebukes in order to change our ways. And so I really, I really wish I'd only been able to receive more of these strong rebukes from godly men and godly women as a new Christian in college 10 years ago. And I think I need to go back and thank those that did do that, the few and far between that did. And maybe this is something you've seen God's grace come to you from a spiritual rebuke, and maybe this is something that you need to do as well. I need to go back and thank them for doing that. So younger men in the church here at CCC, those that have professed belief in Christ, they need strong spiritual rebuke sometimes. So let's not shy away from doing that as we interact with them. 
And so might he be calling you to both take and give out these sharp rebukes for the long-term health of the church. Let's not rob each other of the correction that leads to spiritual growth. Growth, And you all were really the ones that taught me this and the importance of this. So thank you for how you did this, and you, many of you continue to do this in my life even now. So we see that this characteristic of self-control mentioned here is something that young men were lacking both back then and are lacking now. So young men need to learn how to control themselves in an age that tells them that self-control is weak and self-indulgence is a virtue. But how could the original recipients of this letter throw off their Cretan ways, and then actually be self-controlled. And how can young men in the 21st century here in Raleigh, how can they walk that out? We still don't have an answer, so let's keep reading. I think it's safe to assume that Titus himself was a young man, and so that's probably why Paul included some personal instructions to him right after he addressed the young men, the other younger men in the church. But in a sentence, Titus is to be an exemplary disciple, looking down at the text, in all respects. But he is to give special attention to both his life and to his teaching. Verse 7 states that Titus is called to lead out in being a followable model of good works for the congregation. In his teaching, he's supposed to teach what is correct. That's that's the idea here when you see teaching with integrity. But he's also supposed to teach the correct things the correct way or a certain way. So he's supposed to teach with dignity. And this word could also be translated as with seriousness. So when we combine this command for Titus to embrace a serious means of teaching and to do so with sound speech that cannot be condemned, it follows then that when the elder or anyone that's teaching God's word to people, when, when we're teaching, our form actually matters. So the teaching of biblical doctrine shouldn't be taken lightly by the pastor, or, and people listening to him or to others teach God's word should be regularly reminded that they are listening to God speak, just like, similar to the Israelites at Mount Sinai heard God speaking to them. That is what's happening when the Bible is opened up and taught. And so what I think this does mean is that silly, sort of childish ways of preaching and teaching are to be rejected, really, if we really want to follow Paul's guidance to Titus here. And so we have this this third purpose clause of this passage at the end of verse 8 that is really striking. So in essence, Titus is to live out an excellent life, and he's supposed to present solid biblical teaching in content and in style so that we see here in the text, an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So this is now the second time in the passage that we're told that God, the behavior in the church that's consistent with sound doctrine, allows us to have a spiritual impact on those far from God. If these opponents are at all sensitive to spiritual realities, what they're going to see in Titus is a Daniel-like figure from the Old Testament who's above reproach, and they will themselves be ashamed and possibly even convert, though Granted, the text doesn't specifically mention their conversion. Wow, isn't this what we want in our own lives and ministries? I know I do. And what if it was just, it was more than just a few isolated Christians in one congregation living this way? What if it was an entire congregation of people living this way? Can you imagine the type of cumulative, supernatural, and spiritual effect this would have on honest, unbelieving opponents of the gospel here in our day and in our context? It would be massive. But returning to the situation at hand for a second, remember, things are really stacked against Titus here. He's an outsider. He's surrounded by all the temptations of one of the most godless societies in history. He's a young man. He he faces this huge task of putting the church in order. How is he supposed to do all that and set an example in all respects, like verse 7 mentions? And how can church leaders in the 21st century really live this out? 
We're not told, let's keep going to the next section and see if we can finally figure out how they're supposed to obey these commands. So the next section is God to behavior and bond servants, and this is verses 9 to 10. So these Cretan bond servants in verse 9, they're called to be submissive to their own masters and everything. Then Paul goes ahead and fills in for them what this looks like using another ABBA pattern of instruction like he did in verse 3. So they are told to be well-pleasing, which means to aim to please their, please their master. And this word was often used to describe actions that were pleasing to God. And so it becomes clear that they are to serve their masters as if they are seeking to serve God himself. And so being not argumentative and not pilfering or stealing are pretty straightforward terms. And showing all good faith probably refers to the idea of them seeking to be viewed as trustworthy servants who are worthy of the confidence of their masters. And they are to do these things so that in everything they might adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so adorn means to make something visibly more beautiful and more attractive. And so this is now the third time in the passage we're told that godly behavior in the church, that's consistent with sound doctrine, allows us to have a spiritual impact on those far from God. And so here's a quote from one commentator on this last statement in verse 10. They, the bondservants, must act in such a way as to make the teaching about God our Savior more attractive. The Greek word cosmeo, which is translated as adorn in the ESV, is used here of the arrangement of jewels in a manner to set off their full beauty. And that idea is emphasized here. By exemplary Christian behavior, a bondservant has the power to enhance the doctrine and make it appear beautiful in the eyes of all onlookers. And so now I think the most obvious parallel that exists between this instruction to Cretan bondservants concerning their behavior towards their masters and us here in Raleigh in the 21st century is the relationship that we have between employers and employees. And while I'll admit this is not like a one-to-one correlation in any respect, but isn't it true that at work we should also strive to be good employees by aiming to please our bosses, not arguing unnecessarily, and not stealing by cutting corners or being lazy? Of course that's true. But despite the appealing nature of this beautiful phrase at the end of verse 10, really warning bells should be going off in our heads. It really seems, when we remember the context, it really seems like it's too much that these Cretan bondservants were expected to be submissive to their masters in everything, like the text says. These bondservants were the lowest of the low. They had very limited freedom. Furthermore, these people were bondservants in Crete, the island where apparently no one had any self-control and everyone had a drinking problem. Were they really supposed to be excellent servants by never arguing with these types of masters and by never stealing because their masters weren't providing for them? Yes. Yeah, it seems like this is exactly what the Lord was calling them to do for the sake of the gospel. And are we, by extension, sometimes called to submit ourselves to difficult bosses in our workplaces in order to be a light for Christ there? Yes, I think we must be willing to accept that this is what God has for us, perhaps, in certain periods. But how are we supposed to do this? How are we supposed to effectively walk these things out here in Raleigh in the 21st century? Well, I'm glad you asked because without spending too much time here, really verses 11 to 14 outline how the powerful message of the gospel itself fuels the church to faithfully walk out these commands in verses 1 to 10. And I know we didn't have them, we didn't have it, have it read, but we'll just look at it briefly. So we know that this is the case, that these verses in 11 to 14 are the fuel that allow us to obey these commands because of the word here translated in verse 11, which is for, which could also be translated as because, and it's directly related to these preceding verses with these various commands. And so in other words, verses 11 to 14 represent the theological justification and basis 
4, verses 1 to 10. And so let's read 11 to 14 together. I'll read it. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The idea here is that we can obey what's in verses 1 to 10 because of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ has appeared and gives us the ability to do so. It's like heavenly propellant that we need to walk according to verses 1 to 10. So this gospel transforms us from the inside out. And as we appropriate it more and God's grace and more of God's grace flows into our life, it allows us to bring our lives into line with God's commands. And so this is the message that we really need to hear over and over again. This message of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, dwelling with each other in eternity past, perfect harmony, perfect love, and, and they created the universe not because they... God needed us, but because he wanted to allow us to enter into this beautiful, harmonious relationship that he already had. But man didn't obey. We should have lived according to God's rules. We should have acknowledged God as holy and as worthy of our praise, but our first parents didn't do that. And every single person since then has not done that either. God still wanted us to be together, so he sends his son. Jesus comes down, and he obeys perfectly. And he also always chooses to submit himself under God's rule, unlike us. He takes God's anger against our sin on the cross. He dies, and then three days later, he comes back to life, and everything changed. He appeared to his disciples, went back to heaven, and he's coming back again. And then what we're supposed to do with this is this response that's not part of the gospel message itself, but it's our proper response to it, whether we're coming into the faith or whether we're someone who's been in the faith a long time. It's this idea of repentance, of turning away, agreeing with God about our sin, that there's no other way for us to make things up with him, agreeing with him about that, and then believing that Jesus died on the cross and he came back to life. So just to be super clear here, for the, for the non-Christian who might be listening, repenting and believing this message is how you actually become a Christian. And for the Christian here, know also that the yoke and bondage of sin that previously reigned over our lives was broken by Christ on the cross. So Romans 6, 6 to 7 says that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so Jesus didn't just pay for our sins on the cross. He did that, but he also broke the yoke that was over us that just kept leading us to sin over and over and over again. And so to restate the main point of the passage with this new section sort of in mind, God the behavior in the church combined with an understanding of the sound doctrine of the gospel message itself allows us to have an impact on those that are far from God. Let me seek to suggest just two more points of application and then we'll be done. So the first point, please don't walk away from these commands without doing some serious reflection and embracing some life change. Why? Well, because God says here that our personal and corporate piety and godliness is directly related to our great commission effectiveness. This means that as a church, since we want to advance the Great Commission, we want to have an impact on those far from God, then in the church, my business is your business, and your business is my business. Because a lack of godliness in our midst, even if it's seemingly a very private thing, what this does is it cuts the legs out from underneath our Great Commission 
efforts, our efforts aimed at those who are far from God. So put yourself in the categories that apply to you, wherever you see fit, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and even to Titus, who really just serves as an example of someone who has a responsibility of teaching in the church. Put yourself in to the corresponding category, and then reread these instructions several times this week. Then ask yourself some of these diagnostic questions. So as an older man, are you thinking clearly? Are you full of gospel charity? Or has your love sort of gone cold? As an older woman, are you actively embracing, teaching a younger woman to behave in a way that's consistent with sound doctrine? If you're a younger woman, are you actually seeking this out? Are you seeking to be mentored by an older woman? Or, as so many of us are prone to do, do you think that you can do it by yourself? As a younger man, are you growing in terms of your self-control? And have you searched someone out who's ready to rebuke you and urge you to make these necessary changes? Then after asking yourself some of these questions where you see sin, repent, and then rejoice, because like verse 11 mentions, God's grace has appeared. And then actually take some steps to change and rectify your behavior starting this week. And do this, please, even if it's difficult, even if you've been receiving a rebuke that you just didn't want to receive, do it, please, because if you don't, because this pleases the Lord, and also because, because you want our church to have an impact on those far from God. So for the second point of application, then we'll be done. We need to exercise hospitality aimed specifically at non-believers. Why? As a means of making sure that our gospel-adorned lives are seen by those who are far from God. Because the reality is it's possible for us to cultivate all of these godly behaviors and then not spend any time with non-believers. Paul here is calling believers to shine brightly for Christ in full view of the culture around them. So I think our collective tendency as a church is to be hesitant in this area, but remember, Christ is with us, and we are living in a time right now when people are thinking more than usual about life, death, and spiritual issues. So let's not waste this opportunity before us. So let's take a minute or so, silently reflect, repent if necessary, commit ourselves to responding to the text in obedience, and then I'll close this in prayer. Thanks.